Hey, everybody. Welcome into the back room. I'm Andy Ostroy. Very excited for our conversation today with writer Alan Zweibel. We will talk with Alan in just a moment. But first, thank you for tuning in. We appreciate you listening, and we'd love to hear your comments. So email us at backroomandy at gmail.com and or post on our social media, and we'll read some feedback next time. And if you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe and rate and review, and you'll be notified every time we post a new episode. So Alan Zweibel was an original Saturday Night Live writer who's won numerous Emmy and Writers Guild of America awards for his work in television, which includes It's Gary Shandling's Show, which he co-created and produced, The Late Show with David Letterman, and Curb Your Enthusiasm. In the theater, he collaborated with Billy Crystal on the Tony Award-winning play 700 Sundays, Martin Short's Fame Becomes Me, and the off-Broadway hit Bunny Bunny, Gilda Radner, sort of a romantic comedy which he adapted from his best-selling book. In total, Alan has written 11 books, including his Thurber Prize-winning novel, The Other Shulman, and, most recently, a cultural memoir titled Laugh Lines, My Life Helping Funny People Be Funnier. Because of his diverse body of work, the Writers Guild of America East has honored Alan with a Lifetime Achievement Award. Alan, welcome into the back room. Well, thanks for having me. This is a big thrill for me and an honor to have you on and uh, really looking forward to chatting. Oh, that's what we'll be doing. No, we're going to. <laughs> no, I'm. Oh, God I'm, was I misinformed? But... I'm gonna, if you don't mind, I'm gonna go play Sudoku right now, and you can, <laughs> okay. you can do whatever you want. But we'll we'll record. Well, it. I was gonna watch, and maybe I can learn something. <laughs> you know. So, when you know how people sometimes say, like, "Oh, if you can go back in time, what would you want to go back to? What would you want to experience, like an event or a thing?" My answers are always, I would love to have been at the Woodstock concert, and I would love to have been in the writer's room of SNL at the beginning. You, my friend, were there. I'm curious to know, what was it like? Was, did you have any sense that it was going to be this historic, legendary thing, or was it just like another comedy gig? No, no. First of all, it wasn't another comedy gig. It was my first comedy gig. Wow. So it's not like this was the next step. I was 24 years old, and uh, just to back uh, step a little bit, um, my dad manufactured jewelry, and he had a place in Manhattan uh, on 52nd Street between um, 5th and Madison. And when I would run errands for him on, you know, holidays from school or weekends, whatever, no matter where the, um, the errand had to go, I was 12, 13 years old. I would make sure that I would go by way of 30 Rock and go into the lobby of what was then called uh, the RCA building. Mm-hmm. It's now the Comcast building because um, Johnny Carson had the Tonight Show upstairs. Mm-hmm. In the 60s, there was a show called That Was the Week That Was. Mm-hmm. And so there were people in that building doing what I wanted to do someday. And now, July 7th, 1975, I'm reporting to work in that very same building. And as far as knowing what this was about, we had our very, very first meeting that day in Lauren's office. It was the writers and the actors. And I'm looking around, and my background had been writing jokes for Catskill comedians. Mm -hmm. Okay, $7 a joke they paid me. That was the going rate. And my audition for Lorne was a binder that had about 1,100 jokes in it. I showed him that, and he hired me based on that because he knew he was going to need somebody 
who was proficient in writing jokes, there, there would be a weekend update, mm -hmm. there would be a need for that. And um, I was just in awe. I mean, I saw Gilda and Belushi and, uh, and Chevy and Danny, you know, before the meeting started, they had improv backgrounds. It was Second City. I saw them creating scenes right in front of me, okay, and building on each other with an energy. Once again, I wrote for comics. And, and so whatever I wrote for them, they delivered outward, okay, mm -hmm. to an audience. Here, they were actually actors facing each other, playing off of each other, mm. and building scenes. God, you know, it was great. But those it guys was, weren't, they weren't famous, nervous. right? Like, you look, when you saw them, you were like, I don't know who these people are. I mean, they may be funny, and they were performing in front of you, and it was great. But it wasn't like you looked and was like, oh, my God, there's John Belushi. Like, these were all no. unknowns, right? No, because who the hell was John Belushi? Right. Who the hell was Gilded? You know, interesting, sidebar over here, the same exact week or within a 10-day period of when I found out that I was going to get a job on this new show, I also ended up being offered a job to write the questions and bluff answers for Paul Lind on the Hollywood Squares, okay? <laughs> and for half a second... It was a consideration which show, because well, Hollywood Squares is in L.A., that's where the whole business is. It's prime time. It was going into its ninth season. Uh, all the stars and all the boxes, they all had Las Vegas acts and their own variety shows. This would be an entree into the business, whereas 11.30 to 1 on Saturday night, who's watching? Angry people are watching TV then because <laughs> they're not getting laid. They're turning on television. <laughs> Okay. Well, who some people John? who get laid are angry too. Let's just not. Oh, offend. well, yeah, there is that kind. Let's not well, offend you know, the sexually promiscuous. You know something? I can't wait until we get to that part. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, but these were people my age, my sensibility, and you know, I didn't want to write for Charles Nelson Riley. <laughs> you know, All right, even if this doesn't work, at least it, these are my peers. You know, mm -hmm. and so. Um, but as far as looking into the future and how long, I think Lorne had a seven-show deal with NBC, okay? Six or seven shows, and um, it was, he, he insisted, no pilot, okay? Because he figured it would take a handful of shows for the show to ultimately define itself. Mm -hmm. What is, okay? What are we going to present over here? So all I knew is that I had a contract for these six or seven shows. And I was an apprentice writer, which meant that the Writers Guild was allowed to pay me less than the minimum. Al Franken and his partner, Tom Davis, were also apprentice writers. Mm -hmm. And uh, we would then get bumped up to whatever the minimum wage was, uh, the minimum salary uh, at the six, when the options were up, at that seven, six or seven week period. All I knew is, is that um, I was going to have stuff that was on television. Mm. You know, I wasn't smart enough to even have, or I wasn't seasoned enough to even have a calculated guess as to what was, what was going to be going forward. Mm -hmm. So I want to continue with SNL in a minute, but I want to just peel the onion back a little bit and start at the beginning, at your childhood for a few minutes. Because I, I always love to try to understand where people come from because often there's this interesting connective tissue between what kind of kids they were and the 
adults they grew up to be and the work they do. So were you sure. were you like a class clown? Were you the funny kid? Were you the shy kid? Were you an athletic kid? What, what were you like I, as a I, little kid? I was kid? an athletic kid. I was an athletic kid, but I also discovered early on that I could be funny. Uh, we had moved from one school to another in the, uh, my sophomore year. Now, did you grow up in Wontaw? Wontaw and then moved to Woodmere. That's an odd coincidence you and I have because my mother currently lives in Wontaw. And my really? my first wife was from Woodmere, cause, and I was from Far Rockaway. Oh, my God. So this is... Um, what, I spent so much time in Woodmere. Well, that's where we moved to Woodmere in the middle of my sophomore year in high school. Mm-hmm. Okay, to Hewlett High School, because mm-hmm. that's where Woodmere kids went. And when... So, this was, so I was now going to go to school with kids who knew each other since kindergarten. I was the new kid. Yes, I went out for the basketball team, and by some fluke, I made the team, okay? But in general, so I met guys that way. I Mm -hmm. met kids that way. But in general, somewhere in there, I discovered that I could make people laugh, and that broke down social barriers, Mm -hmm. okay? I ingratiated myself, so I kept on feeding it. Prior to that, you know, look, growing up, there was the first family album, which Mm -hmm. we paid a lot. Mm -hmm. Born Meter. There was a 2,000-year-old man. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alan Sherman was a big influence, if you remember his sure. songs. Yeah. Yeah, and he was, started, uh, there was a camp song, right? He, Alan hello, mother, hello, father. Right, yeah. right, right, right. And um, I started doing those, but putting in my own words. And so it was an instinct that I had to try to do my own version mm-hmm. of Alan Sherman, if you will. And I just kept on feeding. There'd be just a little bit of a hobby that, you know, but with sports and whatever. But um, when I got to Hewlett, and I saw that I, you know, it it ingratiated me. I kept on feeding that, mm-hmm. you know. And then it was when I went to college. I went to Buffalo, where I froze my ass off for four years. I stayed in my dorm room, and I started writing jokes writing uh, little scenes from, that I sent to Mad Magazine. It was a, a, a hobby, but the jokes, it was interesting because um, like Dick Cavett had a show at the time, uh, and the, the Tonight Show. I, I would send in a joke. There was no internet, ob- obviously, at that time. So I'd mail something in on Monday. And on Thursday, I would watch the show to see if any of my jokes made it into the monologues. <laughs> And it didn't, but they were close enough. I'm going, wow, I wrote the snowstorm joke to go this way. They went to the, it, it gave me encouragement that maybe I had something to offer, mm. you know? So I didn't take it as a defeat by any means. I just looked for the positive of it. And that's where I nurtured that. And, and, we, then, and when uh, you say jokes, like were you the kind of guy that was just straight up set up punchline, bing, bang, boom kind of jokes? Yeah, I would, it would be that, but I would also react to whatever the situation was. So there was a facility there too, mm-hmm. you know. And um, I, I just, um, when I graduated college, all my friends, it was so scary because they all went to go to law school and med school and dental school. And um, all the law schools in the country told me that, no, no, try to become a comedy writer. <laughs> No, 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 no. Thank you, but no. Sure, okay. your sure your parents love that, by the way. They they were well. They were very supportive. Um, they were really cool. I moved back in with them after college, 
And um, I didn't know how to become a comedy writer. I got a job in a delicatessen. You name it. I, it was in Far Rockaway. Wow. It was, um, what's, is it called Beach Boulevard? Well, there was Seagirt Boulevard. And there was no, it wasn't Seagirt. Beach I think Channel one, Drive. That's what it was. Uh-huh. Wow. Okay. Uh, and I, I, you know, so I was working in a deli. And then my mother and father. Take my pastrami, went, please. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, my mother and father um, went to Lake Tahoe on vacation, and uh, they went into the nightclub one night. And uh, Engelbert Humperdinck, if you remember that name, I think uh, it's same- been, I think it's safe to assume for the audience that <clears throat> you and I are both around a hundred. So yeah, I know who Engelbert. Oh yeah, Hump- yeah, yeah. No, we'll Humperdinck be talking is. about Lincoln very soon. <laughs> I, I know that. So they went to see Engelbert Humperdinck, but his opening act was a Catskill comic named Morty Gunty. Sure. Okay. Yeah, that too. Oh, God, I am 100. Yeah, it's getting sadder and sadder. <laughs> My mother ran into him in a coffee shop the next morning, said that her son wants to become a comedy writer. He gave her his phone number. I called him. Wow. And I started selling jokes to him. Wow. Okay. And then other cats... He paid you the full died. seven, or did you... you, you... Was seven like the, the, you had to work up to seven? That was the going rate, but here, this was the cool thing. Cool. Pissed me off like crazy back then. I would go to their house, I would write jokes, or I'd send them in prior. I'd go up to the Catskills with them, and I'd sit in the back to see if my jokes worked, okay? And it was not unusual for the comic to come off stage and go, boy, that joke about uh, paving the driveway really went into the toilet. And, and I'm going, no, I heard laughs. And then we would haggle and I'd go home with $4. Okay, so. So they would tell you in front of you when you heard the actual audience reaction. I heard that, laughs. That it was different than what you actually heard did, yeah. as a negotiating going, tool. Wow. That's exactly, that's exactly right. So I'm handling. With Suddenly I'm like imagining Jackie Mason go, that joke sucked. Here's $2. Yeah, that, that's exactly. It wasn't Jackie Mason. It might as well have been. Okay. Mm-hmm. Jackie Mason in those days was a big name compared mm. to the guys, Morty Gunty, Dick Lord, Dick Capri, Vic Arnell, mm. Billy Baxter, um, Freddie Roman. Freddie um, Roman was a funny dude. He was really funny, a very, very nice man. Mm. And so literally your first gig was SNL? It was my first gig. Wow. I, I got tired of writing for these comics. They were very nice to me. But I saw that the Catskills were dying. It wasn't my sensibility. It was like writing for my parents' generation, okay? So I looked around and I go, okay, where's the new Catskills? Where's the new breeding ground? And here in New York, it's, um, oh, there were two clubs. It was Catch a Rising Star mm-hmm. and there was the Improvisation. Mm-hmm. And that's where David Brenner and Robert Klein. And and comic Strip Tommy, too, right? Upper East Side Comic Strip was like the third. The Comic Strip hadn't even opened yet. Oh, wow. That was like 80. This is, um, I started hanging out there, 73, 74. Mm. Comic strip wasn't even in existence then. And um, those were big places that were mm. very popular. And I took all the jokes that comics wouldn't buy from me because it was too hip for their rooms, okay? Because mm. uh, it wasn't, you know, mother-in-law jokes. Um, I took those jokes and the plan was to make a stand-up act for myself with the hopes that a manager or an agent would come in 
like the material mm -hmm. and maybe want to represent me to submit me to some TV show. And I did that for about four months. And during that time, I met another guy who was just starting out. His name was Billy Crystal. And he lived about four towns. I was in Woodmere. He was in Long Beach. Mm -hmm. And um, we used to, he used to pick me up every night in his little Volkswagen. We'd drive into the city. Hmm. We'd do our respective sets at Catch a Rising Star. And we record it, okay? And then on the way home, we listen to those cassettes and give each other notes on what, <laughs> what worked, maybe if you said it this way the, and whatever. And uh, four months into this experiment, um, Lorne Michaels saw me, okay? He was going to all these clubs, anywhere in New York looking for writers and actors for this new mm -hmm. show he was thinking about. Hated me as a comic. I was not to be liked. I, I had no, no sense of performance, but he liked the material, wanted to see more. And uh, I had an interview with him two, three days later, came into the city and uh, I had a binder, yay big, with about 1,100 jokes that I had written. Uh, that was my audition piece. Wow. And uh, two or three days after that, I got a phone call that I had a job. And you wrote some incredible skits the samurai for belushi rosanna dana for gilda Radner, yeah. and emily latella those are like that's like yesterday from the beatles you know what i mean like those are well classic i appreciate shit. that but what, i really appreciate that but what's interesting is it, it was were pure um round, very good examples of collaboration you know with roseanne rosanna dana gilda had done that character unnamed in a uh public service announcement that was written by a writer named Rosie Schuster. And uh, where Gilda had that wig, had that dialect. I think the name of the, of the PSA was hire the incompetent. Okay. So her <laughs> vignette, uh, her vignette was um, to talk about how she got fired from Burger King because, you know, they found a hair in one of the, um, Hamburger, she said that she, you know, she scratched herself under her arms while she was saying it. And I was having dinner with Gilda about two, three weeks later. I said, Hey, remember that, um, that, that woman that you did? I said, I was producing Weekend Update. And I said, Why don't we move her into Weekend Update and um, have her do consumer reports? Not unlike, and there was a woman on WABC named uh, Roseanne yeah. Scamp. Della, yeah, right? I remember her, sure. And Gilda said, without without even a hitch, she said, okay, can we name her Roseanne, Rosanna, Dana? I said, well, fine. Where did you come up with that? Remember that song from the 60s, the name game, Johnny, Johnny, Bobani, mm -hmm. Banana? If you put Roseanne in there, somewhere like the ninth stanza, it comes out Roseanne, Rosanna, Dana. <laughs> um, we named her that, put her in there, and... We started developing this character. Uh, she got a letter every week from a guy named Richard Fader from Fort Lee, New Jersey. He's my brother-in-law. Mm. Okay, and um, the thing just took off, and be, you know, so once again, uh, it was me and Gilbert collaborating. But initially, you know, I had seen that character in a different situation elsewhere. The, the, same thing with the um, samurai. John auditioned for the show with that character, mm. okay? 
And then uh, one of the other writers named um, Tom Schiller, uh, he wrote Samurai Hotel. And it, it worked really, I think Richard Pryor was in. Mm -hmm, sure, Pryor amazing show. skit. Mm -hmm. And then about three, four shows later, the 11th show we ever did, Buck Henry was hosting and Lorna walks by my desk and goes, you know, before you came here, you worked in a deli, right? Mm -hmm. I said, yeah. He says, um, you think you can write Samurai Delicatessen? I'm like, oh, you bet, boss. <laughs> okay, then he walked away. I had no idea what the hell I was going to do. All that deli experience you had. I pulled it all, the, all yeah, taking a number, standing online, mm -hmm. cutting the thing. And I wrote it. And then I wrote the next 12 or whatever it was. Mm. Those were amazing. The one with Richard Pryor in particular was was pretty classic um i was married to adrian shelley she was a, a actor and a filmmaker she wrote the movie waitress sure she always reminded me of gilda radner they were both small and cute and funny and silly and lovable tell me about your relationship you guys obviously were collaborators professionally but we you were involved personally or almost were well we we, we were a platonic lovers let's put it that way i had written a book shortly, oh, a couple of years after she passed away, called Bunny Bunny, Gilda Radna, a sort of love story. And it, um, look, we, we hit it off initially. We made each other laugh. She was a little scared of New York because she was from Detroit, came here by way of Toronto, Second City. I grew up on Long Island. My dad worked in New York. New York was my city, so we started hanging out and going to dinner made each other laugh a lot and we started collaborating not exclusively by any means but we did and um it ended up that um she was uh the godmother of of our three children hmm. all right so and um the last tv uh, appearance she ever made was on a show that i co-created called it's gary shandling show mm -hmm. Gilda um, had, had, was, I think they, we thought that she was in remission at mm -hmm. that point. And she got nominated for um, an Emmy for that uh, appearance. And in the wake of that, Shandling and Gilda and I was started to create a TV show for Gilda. And the TV show would be where she was the star of a variety kind of show. And you would see the writer's room. You would see... Uh, uh, you know, the rehearsals, you would see her at home. And then the, the cancer came back with a vengeance. Mm. And that premise Gary took, and he, he just grafted it into a talk show, and that became Larry Sanders. Mm. Okay, I still have the notes here somewhere, you know. And but so the, the relationship was um, incredibly close. And um, did you want more? Like, were you in love with her? Oh, God, yeah, but she would have none of it. It's <laughs> a matter of fact, um, when she, oh, God, this was a full court press for 14 years. And uh, when she got sick, and I went to uh, visit, I went to Cedar Sinai Hospital in LA, okay, to give blood. Because the nurse came up to me, I was, I was like on a gurney, right? And a nurse gave me a, a pad and a pen. And I said, what's this for? 
She says, well, Gilda likes to know whose blood she's getting. Write her something nice. She's having a tough time. And I wrote, dear Gilda, I knew I'd get some fluid of mine into you one way. <laughs> so that's hot. That pretty much epitomized the whole relationship. Yeah, that's, you know? that's hot. <laughs> that's hot. <laughs> um, what's the significance of bunny, the word bunny? Well, as, as, a, as a young girl, um, the first day of every month, the first words out of her mouth was a superstition where she would say bunny bunny. Mm. And um, that was uh, some, some girls say rabbit, rabbit. Uh, you know, on Long Island, we said rabbi, rabbi. <laughs> no, she, she was, that was a superstition that she did even as an adult, the first day of every month. Mm. So when she passed, and I wrote this book, which I then adapted into a, a play that ran uh, off Broadway for a while. Um, I called it Bunny Bunny. Mm. It was my way of saying hi to her. Mm. You know, it's really interesting. I, Adrian was a fan of Gilda, as I'm sure a lot of young women who were entering show business at around, you know, the 80s. And like a lot of actors, she at times was a struggling actor. And when she was struggling, she would sell... She would buy and sell vintage clothing, and her name on eBay was Bunny's Vintage. And oh, now, that's interesting. And now I'm wondering if she, if she, if that was. I never asked her what was. Where'd you get Bunny from? But that's interesting. I, I wonder if she knew that. Wow, everybody. it's 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 all very possible because yeah. Gilda was very. Um, she was vocal and somewhat public about even her, her innermost feelings and mm -hmm. secrets, whatever. That's why I think. She had that quality where, you know, uh, when she died, people felt that they lost a friend, even if they had never met her, because she had that, she exposed herself, you know, and uh, if she had trouble with guys, she had demons, you know, later we, you know, uh, bulimia. I had never heard of bulimia. Mm. I didn't even know what it was until, oh, there's a word for what she does. You, you know what I'm saying? So, but she was very, very uh, vocal about those things. And um, it was embracing yeah. that somebody uh, make. I, I've often been asked um, what I thought her greatest talent was, and I, I personally, aside from all the, you know, dialects and everything that she did to a sense of humor, I think that um, her ability um, uh, to be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Uh, publicly vulnerable, and I think people attach themselves to that. Yeah. If you watch the documentary Love Gilda, you get that loud and clear, and she is lovable and vulnerable, but you, you really do see her under the worst of times, and you you fall in love with her. You get you, you know, get the we, essence of who she was. When we, when we did Love Gilda, we went to the premiere of it. My wife and I were executive producers on it, and they used a lot of our footage our home footage. Uh, and so I had never seen, well, maybe I saw a rough cut of it, but we went to the premiere of it at the Tribeca Film Festival mm -hmm. and uh, had our children, uh, you know, and look, when they were growing up, they go, wait a second, why is Aunt Gilda on television? They knew her as a person, mm -hmm. as almost a, you know, a, a sort of a relative mm -hmm. first. Mm -hmm. But I, the kids were surrounded us, we have three children and they were looking at this as if they're looking at a home movie. Oh, I remember that Seda that Gilda came to. Mm. I remember when 
she put the makeup on me before I went trick-or-treating and that stuff. So there was something, um, and but some of that footage that I saw in Love, Gilda, I never saw that stuff from the hospital bed before mm. until I saw that. I never saw any, a, a lot of that stuff. Um, so it was, and once again, um, what came through there, aside from her talent and the fun history, you know, to see Marty Short and John Candy from mm -hmm, back then, mm -hmm. all that was, here was this girl whose dad died when she was 14 or 15, never really got over it. When he was alive, she became funny to try to make him laugh. And when he passed, I believe that she was still trying to make him laugh. Okay. And, um, Boy, that all came through. Mm -hmm. Tell me how old Gilda was again when she died. Well, she was uh, 39. She was. Mm. Um, she died on my birthday. She died um, on my. She died in 1989. Mm. So yeah, my 39th birthday. Wow. And she she would have been 43 the following month. She was born in June. Mm. Another. That's another crazy coincidence. Adrian died at 40, <clears throat> and her dad died when she was 12. Wow. So she, well, she, you know, you my know. friend Je Jesse Nelson. Sure. Um, she wrote. Um, yeah, I know Jesse. Yeah, yeah I, know, I know Jesse. She's a good pal. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, she's great. She's great. She did a great job on that show, and uh, it was a tough, tough gig for her, and she navigated I that bet. really, really well. She stayed very true she's to the. She's got script. a lot of grace. Yeah. She's got a lot of grace, and she's got a, a, a wonderful kind of. Um, life philosophy when it comes to dealing with assessing certain situations and how to deal with it, especially things that she has no control over. You know, she's, she's, um, uh, she's quite a spirit and she's quite an example to a lot of us, how we should be as opposed to the hotheads. Most of us are. <laughs> yeah, no, she, <clears throat> she did handle that situation with grace and I had met her back in, Oh, oh, eight. I was producing a film called Serious Moonlight that Adrian had written and was shopping around ah. before her death. And uh, Meg Ryan was our star, and uh, Jesse and Meg were very, very good friends. And so uh, we were at the Nantucket Film Festival together, all of us. And it was oh wow, it was great. It was a great time to to get Adrian's work out there and get to meet Jesse. Um, sure. So you've worked with some amazing comic legends i mean letterman shandling martin short billy crystal larry david it's you know, like the hall of fame it, it, it's it's you know a lot of us started out together you know billy crystal and mm -hmm. i started out together. larry david and i met at those clubs those few months that that i was a comic before i got the uh, job on snl and he still remains we, we you know we we send each other our Wordle scores every morning, you know, so if, if that doesn't show how uh, close we are, I don't know what is. And um, I've been really lucky that way in, in terms of the collaboration. I um, It's a very interesting thing about Marty Short. Uh, when I first met Gilda, and uh, it was maybe a month into the show, and she just looked at me one day and she says, um, Martin Short is the funniest person on the planet. And I didn't know who that was because I wasn't on Second City yet. I didn't know who that was. And then I saw Ed, him do Ed Grimley. Oh, Ed Grimley was the funniest thing ever. Okay. Then I call up Gilda. I go, holy shit, you're right. My God. And I really must say. <laughs> yes. Yes. And 
Then she said to me, I want you two to become friends. I said, oh, okay. She says, no, I'm serious, my bell. It's important. So we, through the years, we knew each other through mutual friends, run into each other, see each other at a party. And then we both shared the same manager, a man named Bernie Brillstein. Mm -hmm. And Bernie called me. We lived in New Jersey. I had just come off of a book tour from one of my books. And I walk into the uh, house. The phone is ringing. I pick it up. It's Bernie. Hey, kid. I go, hey, I just came in from the book tour. He goes, fuck that. Uh, Martin Short is doing a show that's going to go right into the shit house if it doesn't get some help. Bernie was very eloquent, as you can see. Um, he says, get your ass out to San Francisco. I fly to San Francisco. I see the show. And I, uh, I call Bernie, and I you know, meet, I meet with Marty. And I said, I think I could help. Good. All right. So I replaced the writer. And we then went to Toronto. And we opened in Toronto... And Eugene Levy had a party at his house to celebrate the opening of Marty's show. So uh, Catherine O'Hara was there with the, the, the Second City people were mm -hmm. there. And at one point, Eugene makes a little speech why we're here. He was very funny. And then he invokes Gilda's name. He says, in, with, a, with us in spirit is Gilda. And me and Marty looked at each other from across this table that we were standing on opposite sides of. And it was like, mm -hmm. and it was like what Gilda had willed. Mm. Okay. And today we're still very good friends, very good friends. And, um, you know, but I learned early on that, uh, you know, look, I write books by myself. I write stuff by, you know, movies by myself. So I, I, I go on TV to, um, on talk shows, you know, to, uh, you know, to publicize whatever I have that's current. But so I get off that way. Okay. Any that, that need in me, you know, if there's an audience I'm speaking in front of at a college or an industrial show, that's great. But the collaborative part, I, I I'm also writing books and movies with Dave Barry. Mm. I, I, it, it, be, it's a social thing. So I, I like that a lot. I love the synergy of one and one equaling three. And I think the reason that I've been successful in writing with so many people is you just take your ego and you put it here. It's all about the work. Mm -hmm. There's no competition. There's no, hey, do it my way. No, do, no, it's none of that. Okay, if you're, not, if you're not comfortable saying this, even though I think you should say it, you're the one who's gonna be saying it and it's not gonna come out legit if you're forcing yourself. So here was my intent of why I wrote that. If you agree with the intent, let's figure out another way to say it that you are comfortable with. Mm -hmm. So it becomes very, the collaboration becomes psychological to a degree. How do you deal with this person mm -hmm. um, and all that? So I've been really lucky that way. Well, you've been lucky that you've got to collaborate with some of the most iconic comedians and ta comic talents in history it's not, it's not just a collaboration yeah, yeah. i mean you're collaborating on a scale that is is epic but one would think that with people like that that the egos are so large that the collaboration would be difficult because of that but it sounds like that wasn't the case no it wasn't the case and i'll tell you why i think that is the case why it wasn't the case is that because 
I let it be known early on, okay, I'm here to help you, all right? Um, if you thought enough of me to ask me to collaborate, uh, we're partners here, but I'm vice president at best. You're president, because you're going to be saying this stuff. Right. I think I have a very, whereas that's with performers. Mm -hmm. With Gary and I used to lock horns all the time, Shanley, okay? He was one of the funniest human beings I'd ever come across. I hate to use the word genius, but I do believe, mm -hmm. um, you know, he would come up with stuff and I'd go, wow. There's, there's certain people who were like that. When I was with SNL, uh, Dan Aykroyd was that way. There was a writer named Michael O'Donoghue sure. who, who, who founded the Lampoon. And when they we would read something of theirs, you know, sometimes there's a, an unspoken competition among writers in the writer's room or at the read-through. Oh, I should have thought of that. Damn it, I could have done that. Mm -hmm. Anytime we would read O'Donoghue or Dan Aykroyd stuff, I would just sit back and enjoy the ride because there's no way am I writing Basimatic where you drink a fish, okay? That was Danny, all right? Bag of, just, bag of glass. Bag of glass, those characters that he did mm -hmm. and, and, and all of that, I'm just going, wow. So you enjoy it because it's funny, mm -hmm. but at the same time you go, you marvel at that component sure. that allows them to think that way I don't think that way. Yeah, I do things they can't do, perhaps. So that's why, once again, mm -hmm. when I would collaborate with Dan Aykroyd, you, you get, you couldn't get two more unlikely partners, mm -hmm. given our respective sensibilities. Same thing with Michael O'Donoghue. But, you know, there was something about having a tacit respect for, all right, this person can do this, I can't do that. And you're both feeling that way. Let's see what the synergy will be. Mm-hmm. Um, I heard a story that Larry David told once, which was classic Larry David, but he was telling how a, an actor once said something like, you know, I want to change the line. And, and Larry was like, nah, it's, it's, it's fine the way it is. Just leave it the way it is. And he's like, no, I, I don't think, I don't think my character would say that. And Larry said, no, actually, I, I think he would because I wrote it. Like, <laughs> that's like boom done mic drop like yeah, yeah like what do you say to that that's i created a character the character i created would say that say that that's it okay. shut up and I, mean, I think he finished that story with like no so just shut up and say the say the line <laughs> um so david letterman there are people on this planet who i think are really funny but when i think of people who are like my comedy spirit animals from their timing, their delivery, their material, their expressions, everything. Like, Letterman is that for me. Like, I think he's one of the funniest people that ever walked the face of this this earth. And as a talk show, I mean, I was a huge Carson fan, but I, I got to say, I think he's as good, if not better, than Carson was. Uh, you know something? I was a guest on that show seven or eight times, and I, I loved going on it. I loved bantering with him uh, as a fan. When I saw what he was doing, you know, at, at SNL, Ernie Kovacs was held in very, very high regard as a video pioneer, mm -hmm. as somebody at the inception of TV. Look what he did with the medium. Um, David did the same thing with the talk show. You know, now, I don't remember 
I was too young, I guess, to remember Steve Allen, who mm -hmm. I understand was incredibly innovative when it came to that stuff too. But as far as Letterman was concerned, there was something not only about his mind, but there was something about his, his manner. Mm -hmm. There was something about uh, how understated he was, and it was hilarious, mm -hmm. you know? Little throwaways. And um, as opposed to somebody who's in your face, <laughs> you know what I mean? There was this stuff that came in underneath. Mm -hmm. And if you were lucky enough to catch it, you, you really appreciated it. So I agree with you. Mm -hmm. The sarcasm out of him was epic it, it, in an understated yeah, I, way in an understated and by the way the sarcasm at times was so subtle mm -hmm. that the person he was sarcastic to and about didn't realize they were being insulted right okay in, in this very subtle um not offensive way mm -hmm. you had to listen for it i agree with you yeah. totally there and he was also incredibly self-deprecating which i think was a great counter to the the subtle sarcasm because he wasn't sitting there like a dick just making fun of people he was more so probably making fun of himself more than anyone i i think that there was um i i agree with you totally again you know there was he would make fun of himself at times there was an acknowledge ineptitude okay if he was in a situation that was running away you know uh by itself um there was something so genuine. Mm. That's the best word I can put for it in the sense that he wasn't playing the part of that guy. He right. was just himself, you know? He was just so funny. Do you watch SNL now? Yes, I do. Mm -hmm. um, what I do you watch think? it on Saturday, Saturdays because I'm 73 now, okay? <laughs> so I, I get to it usually by so Monday. It's Sunday too. morning live. Yeah, there you go. Um, I... I yeah, I watch it because it's my alma mater. Mm -hmm. You know, it's um, the same reason I root for my old high school football team. I can't play for them, but I still want them to win. You right. know, and um, I, I, I look. It's going to start it, next year is the fiftieth anniversary. Mm -hmm. You know, I went up there the other day doing some documentaries to uh, commemorate the fiftieth, and uh, I was in a couple of them. And one that I was up there up at uh, at the studio the other day. And I'm looking around, you know, in all the memories, uh, you know, I can see Gilda, I can see this one, I can see Belushi in that one. I met my wife on the show. So it, it was just, and I'm thinking to myself, um, wow, how lucky was I to be a part of this? Jesus, you know, and as far as the show is concerned today, what, what the show has had uh, is the... Um, I believe the advantage and also disadvantage mm -hmm. of reconstituting itself on the air in front of us when cast members leave uh, who we miss and now new ones come in, who are they and, and, and all that, which is incredibly brave and, and whatever. Um, I, I think that in some ways, um, with possible exception of Weekend Update with this really funny, you know, in some ways I think that all comedy shows right now have their hands tied sure. a little bit, you know, just want like comics uh, editing themselves before they even get on stage, because am I going to piss off this group or that stuff that you don't mean any sure. harm by? No, I wanted to ask you about that, because I, I often think about, and I talk about that whenever I have a, a comic on, on the pod and we talk about the old days, 
I had Judd Apatow on once, and I asked him a lot about this. And you think about like that skit on SNL with Chevy Chase and Richard Pryor, you know, dead honky. Like, can you even do half of that today? You can't. You can't even think about that yeah. these days. You can't even. That was called word association. Mm -hmm. And uh, I believe that uh, Pryor and Chevy wrote that. There was also a writer that Richard brought in that week. I'll think of his name in a second. He passed away a couple of years ago. Really funny. They wrote it, right? And um, I remember, like, that was the seventh show we ever did. I can remember the mm -hmm. whole first year. Oh, yeah, yeah, the 16th show. Yeah, that was Desi Arnaz and hmm. uh, Gilded Period. And it, it was only <laughs> for some reason. These, and um, they did... Uh, I remember being in the studio watching it either rehearsed or performed for the dress rehearsal with the audience there. And I, A, I couldn't believe the material, how, how great it was. But I remember Pryor's slow burn every single time Chevy would throw, you know, another name at him. And then Richard would try to he'd take it in you can see he's internally seething and then come back with the next one, which was even more outrageous than the one that Chevy had served him. You, you couldn't even pitch that today. There's not a chance. Look, Lorne had done, done an interview a few years ago for um, New York Times when this whole woke thing or whatever started. And he was talking about Roseanne, Roseanne, Dan, it couldn't be done today. Hmm. The samurai couldn't be done sure. today. Mentioning other iconic you know, look, I, I have, we have five grandchildren, right? And when one of them, a few years ago, when he was about nine, uh, told me that his friend, let's say fourth grade, got in trouble because that friend said to another kid, you gypped me out of a quarter. I didn't know that Jip came from Gypsy. So yeah, I just learned that about a year ago myself. So, uh, so you know, wait a second. So we're pissing off Gypsies now, and that's a thing. <laughs> okay, people yes. who come to town. Yes, we are. And sell you these weird potions. Yeah, okay. I get it, and I I understand that there's a need to be sensitive to marginalized communities and minorities. And I'm a minority. I'm a Jew. I'm a minority. But at the same time, when you think about the history of comedy, people like Letty Bruce and George Carlin and Pryor and the early Chappelle years. I mean, I just saw a Chappelle skit the other day, which I haven't seen in years. I can't even say the name of the skit because it's like, it's a variation of the N-word, but it's about a white family whose last name is basically is the, the N-word. Oh my God, it's the most brilliantly <laughs> funny thing I've ever seen in my life. But comedy, you used to be able to use comedy as like a scorching way to spotlight all the ills in the world and make people think about important shit through the lens of humor absolutely and we can't do you can't do that anymore it's like we put all these guardrails on everything it's just kind of it saddens me that like you can't do certain skits like that anymore like what like should it be offensive it's it's comedy you got to be able to it's, laugh at shit you know you know it's interesting because i agree with you a thousand percent and it used to be that we all made fun of each other and then we went to lunch together afterwards. You know what I mean? It was playground stuff. Mm -hmm. right? If you go back, go on YouTube and look at the Rat Pack. 
Sure. Okay. You'll see where they're holding Sammy Davis Jr. Oh, it's, it's, and it's a gift from the NAACP. I, yes. No, it's crazy. It's crazy right. what they did with Sammy. And people were laughing. And you think Don Rickles would stand 30 seconds on the stage now? Right. There'd be no and Rickles. There would be no. So you think about who there wouldn't be. And you're right about who expand, you know, the boundaries, the parameters. They are the Lenny Bruce's. Look at Python. Look what they did with the Queen. Look what they did with the Catholic Church, right? Mm -hmm. Go back to Jonathan Swift. Okay, look at look at um, Gulliver's Travels and, and, and all of that. You, you, this is all about holding a mirror and learning from it. You know, mm -hmm. it, it's, it's so out of hand, but I, I think I have no way of really knowing this, so I could be totally wrong. That uh, it's starting to be opposed a little bit. Uh, it's starting to be opposed because it's it's so out of hand. But I ran into Chris Rock about a year ago, and I, I asked him how it was going, and he had also told me he vowed that he wasn't going to go out and do colleges because you get there, they give you a list of the subjects you're not allowed to talk about. Wow. And colleges were always the bastion of liberalism, yep. right? Yeah. It's all different ideas and this and that. And now it's so guarded. You know, you used guardrails before, and that's a very apt term. Mm. That's absolutely right. Yeah. I think you're right. I think that the pendulum swings back when it's swung too far in one direction. And I think it has swung a bit too far. And I, and I would agree that I think we're going to see it come back. So you've written 11 books. Like most people can just tackle one career. Like, all right, I'm good at comedy. You're like you film, theater, books. Do you consider yourself a jack of all trades and a master of nothing? Or do you think you're a master of everything? <laughs> <laughs> I look, well, I've always considered myself a writer. And where I have been very fortunate is, look, get an idea. And I've had the luxury of saying, how is the best way to express this idea? Mm. Is this idea a novel? Is this idea um, a screenplay? Or maybe this idea is just a, a, a short sprint. Uh, maybe it's a three-piece thing for the New Yorker, with, where I've also written. There's a there's a uh, online magazine now called Airmail mm -hmm. that uh, a lot of us are contributing to, and uh, so those ideas, you know. I'll send it to Graydon Carter. I think he'll like it and he'll publish it. So it's, you know, it's up for others to tell me whether I have a master of any of them or none of them. But I just serviced the idea the best I could. And um, that's a, that's a, a very fortunate luxury I've had. Now, you've had a you've had a, an illustrious career. You can't it's hard to s use that term with a lot of people, but y your career speaks for itself. Thing. And I could literally talk to you for hours. The last thing I want to ask you is, w is there anything you're working on now that you want to plug? What are you doing next? Um, I, I'm just about finished with a novel mm -hmm. that's taken me literally 11 years. Obviously, I've done other stuff during these 11 years. because, And I think I just about got it right. I'll let, the pe you know, I'll, I'll let um, my publisher know that. Um, I just, Dave Barry and I wrote a book called Lunatics, oh, a number of years ago, and uh, we just finished the screenplay for it because it was optioned, and I'm working on something with Barry Levinson, which is a dream come true because not only is he a friend, 
he's Barry Levinson, mm -hmm. you know, so I do have a lot of fingers in a lot of different uh, pies or pots, wherever fingers go, I've got them there. Bowling balls. Um, Bowling balls. Yes, some other places, which we're not going to talk about. Oh, but uh, <laughs> but uh, you, you also wrote a book, uh, which I love this title, A Field Guide to the Jewish People, who they are, <laughs> where they come from, what to feed them, and much more. What do you feed a Jew? Well, it's, these look, days, what do you feed a Jew these days? These days, it's not easy. Um, I, look, if you treat every day as Passover, you, you can't go wrong, okay? That book came about because I, I, had, I was speaking at some book fair, I guess in, in Arizona, and there's so like 1,100 people that I would be talking to, and, I, and it, was a, it was an author at every table, and I looked at the roster, and at one table was an author named Adam Mansback. I had just become familiar with his name that week, coincidentally. He had written a children's book called Go to Fuck to Sleep. Okay? Oh, I know that book, yeah. Sold a gazillion copies. Mm -hmm. It was really funny, so I sought him out. We became friendly. We started, We wrote a couple of uh, middle-grade books together. Then we were down at Miami Book Fair. I introduced him to Dave Barry who I had already written with, and we were already friends. So we said, let's do something together. Adam said, why don't we do a parody of the Passover Haggadah? Okay. Dave Barry gave it the title, For This We Left Egypt. <laughs> okay. And it, <laughs> and it did very well, well enough for us to, the same publisher gave us another book for the mm -hmm. three of us, that was the field guide to the Jewish people. Mm, so once again, we all had our individual mm -hmm. things that we were writing, mm -hmm. the solitary things, but here was the social thing. Oh, look what came in my inbox. Another chapter that I can react to, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So that that's how, um, so if, if, if you do it, otherwise you, you'll blow your brains out. <laughs> you spent too much time alone in a room trying to be funny. It's an unnatural act. Yeah, no, I would imagine the collaborative process, especially the ones you've had. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible. And, and I'm not lying when I say I could sit here for the next six hours listening to all your stories, which means you'll have to come back on. Oh, and, I'll be uh, happy to. This has been a pleasure, really. Yeah, likewise. Anytime you want me, I'm around. Okay. Thanks so much for doing this, Alan. Take care, Andy. Bye-bye. This episode of The Back Room was edited and produced by me, Andy Ostroy. It was co-edited and co-produced by Maddie Rosenberg and co-produced by Jen Hamoud. Our theme song was composed by Andrew Hollander, and our logo was designed by Cricket Langell. And special thanks to Patricia Wind. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast, and also follow or subscribe. Until next time, keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards, and have a great week. Bye.